The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about um, coming to the practice and how I came to the practice. It's a good question we can ask ourselves. How do I come to the practice? How do we fully arrive in the seat of this process? I've been watching a lot of these uh, National Geographic uh, shows lately, a lot of the wilderness ones. And I have this image in the plains of Africa of these uh, animals coming to the water. You know, they come from all over. Snakes, elephants, gazelle, zebra. And some of them, for some of them, it's a really long journey. And somehow this reminds me of coming to the practice, the sustenance, uh, for myself at least, it's, it's really what nourishes me in my life. Um, I think of it as coming home to the triple gem. In the Buddhist tradition, this is referred to in a variety of different ways. Uh, tonight I'm going to talk about, I'll refer to it as the triple gem. It's the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So what is Sangha? It's the third gem of the triple gem. It's referred to as the community. Traditionally, it's the community of those who attained enlightenment. If you go back historically, uh, maybe the monastics, um, and they may be helping a practicing Buddhist to do the same. It's often thought of the monastic Sangha. Uh, the Sangha is also generally refers to the fourfold community of monks, nuns, men and women, lay followers. And more broadly, it refers to the community of practicing Buddhists, like IMC, like us tonight. We are Sangha. So, why is Sangha important to people? Why is it important to your practice? Why is it important to coming to the practice? For me, this was really a key, uh, a key entry point in connecting at a very different level after reading books about Buddhism, which was kind of how I started to become interested. I felt like it was the, kind of the lowest hanging fruit, if you will. It was a way that I could uh, connect at a level very different, probably a lot more heartfelt than sort of intellectually reading about Buddhism. Um, I spent years of searching, practicing with different teachers and other traditions. I read Jack Kornfield's book, uh, A Path with Heart, which had a pretty strong impact on me. And it really, um, yeah, sort of lit my fire, if you will. And I found and went to a local sangha. At this time, I was living in Washington, D.C. They have a Pretty big, uh, pretty big community. And I felt when I got there, you know, this is a safe place for me. This is a place I can go and I can remain anonymous if I want. You know, I can show up. I can listen to the teachings. I can talk to people if I need to. Uh, it really felt like um, I could discover at my own pace what I was searching for and still felt somewhat uh, held, like I had a place, a place of refuge to go to. 
it was in this environment that I learned about even the concept that there were retreats available, silent retreats. <laughs> and uh, that was really a key event. I think that really, really radically changed my understanding and my commitment to practice. So uh, I, I hold a lot of value in the Sangha. I felt like I had finally met my tribe. And for a long time I was pretty anonymous. I just would show up, sit there, pay attention, look around the room. But somehow it felt really uh, comfortable, really cozy. Like, okay, I'm at home here. Um, I experienced a lot of wholesomeness, kindness, uh, authenticity of both the practitioners, the volunteers, the teachers. Uh, It was really clear to me this was something I was attracted to. It was something I wanted to be around. It was something I wanted to embody in myself. So I could feel, you know, whether I knew that intellectually or not, it didn't even matter. Intuitively, uh, I was drawn to that. Whatever it was that these people had, (laughs) uh, I knew it was right. I knew it was uh, something I wanted for myself. So that was uh, kind of an important um, aspect of it. I don't know how many are, are there. Anybody here who knows what the uh, familiar with the term Kalyana Mita? This is a Pali term, and it means uh, spiritual friendship. It's uh, means good friend, noble friend, admirable friend. It's quite a key thing in in certainly for me coming into the practice. Uh, in particular, having at least one Platonic friend with whom we can be uh, very frank and intimate with about what's happening in our lives, what we're doing, how we're doing in our practice, if we've, you know, set some aspiration for ourselves and haven't kept them. You know, it's somebody you can be pretty candid with, like, oh, I can't believe what I did today. You know, I mean, there's, there, there's a real value to being able to have a trusted friend that you can... Uh, openly share, of course, good things in your life, but also, you know, where you've kind of either let yourself down or behaved in a way that you didn't think was so skillful. Uh, I think bringing it to light and being able to talk to somebody about it is a way to face it and begin to understand how we can get embroiled in behaviors and actions that don't support us. Um, It's these friendships that we have the opportunity to develop the virtues of generosity, compassion, patience, and forgiveness. I have a very dear friend who I uh, actually met when I moved here to California about six years ago. He's been a monk, was a monk for quite a while. And uh, we had just an amazing connection pretty much from the moment we met. And I was, I've always been impressed with just his uh, upright way of being in the community and uh, his uh, the, the number of connections he has. It seems like he knows everybody. Uh, I was new to this area. One time I went with him to um, Berkeley Buddhist Monastery and we get there and I mean there must have been 50 people there and everybody was coming up to him. Oh, hi, how you doing? Hi. And I was watching this and later I said to him, how do you have so many friends? How do you know so many people? 
and they all seem to be such good people. Uh, and, you know, he said, well, I do a lot of Dharma-related things. I hang out a lot of different sanghas. And after a while, you know, after a few years, you, you get to know all these people. And I said, are all your friends Buddhist? And he stopped for a second, and he said, pretty much. You know, I was astounded. That really was a really key moment for me. I still remember sitting there going, wow, you know, I mean, I had a lot of friends, uh, certainly on the, you know, that I, uh, all over the world, actually. Didn't have so many here in California. And I, somehow there was this segregation in my life, all these people I knew, and then my sort of spiritual path, and this, these people, these Buddhists. So the idea that this person, you know, his whole world was surrounded by this kind of company, really, I just really thought long and hard about it. And I thought, oh, I, I guess I could do this too. This is my free choice. Who I surround myself with and what I do and how I choose to use my time is completely my free choice. So, not to underestimate uh, what Kalyanamita spiritual friendship is, it can be very, very powerful if you're uh, at any point on the path. It's very supportive to have other people who are aspiring to learn and grow and wake up and improve themselves in in a similar fashion. Um, I heard this early on. I just didn't quite understand it the way I'm beginning to now, that I continue to surround myself around people who um, are doing a similar thing or similarly dedicated to their awakening. Uh, One of the very famous statements on friendship in Buddhism um, comes when the Buddha's cousin Ananda is said to have approached the Buddha and remarked, quote, This is half of the holy life, Lord, Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie. And the Buddha replied, Don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. That's a pretty powerful statement. So, if that's what the Buddha says, (laughs) I buy into it. You know, when you, when again, I've heard this before and uh, it, it took me, it took a long time for it to really resonate deeply within me. In terms of uh, householders, you know, a lot of times when there's quotes uh, from the old scriptures, that, you know, there might be references to monks and monastics. So, you know, just to broaden that a little bit, in terms specifically of householders, these would be non renunciates. Um, the Buddha provides the following elaboration in the Digajuna Sutta. And what is meant by admirable friendship? There is the cause where a lay person, in whatever town or village he may dwell, spends time with householders or householder's sons, young or old, who are advanced in virtue. He talks with them, engages them in discussions. He emulates consummate conviction in those who are consummate in conviction, consummate virtue in those who are consummate in virtue, consummate generosity in those who are consummate in generosity, and consummate discernment in those who are consummate in discernment. This is called admirable friendship. So there's quite a bit of reference in the old teachings about this. 
I think, not to take lightly. So that's sort of my um, encapsulation of the Sangha as far as the triple gems, the third gem. The second gem is uh, the, dham- the Dhamma. It's also referred to as Dharma. Dharma is the uh, Sanskrit term. Dhamma is the Pali term. I'm a little partial to the Pali term because I hang around a lot of monastics, uh, and that's the, the term that they use. So they're interchangeable. Whichever one you prefer, you can use. And the Dhamma is uh, considered the teaching or the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, without a commitment to truth, there is no Buddhist path. Dhamma is a synonym for truth. And Dhamma practice is synonymous with living a life of truth. This, for me, was the juice uh, that really resonated when I came to this practice, both in my intellectual understanding, but initially uh, more at an experiential level. I I had already been meditating, and I had been practicing with different teachers um, that were not Buddhist. But I I often, I just had this feeling like something was missing. Um, It wasn't quite, you know, it. And when I came to the teachings of the Buddha, I was uh, so taken aback by the complexity and the level of depth and the, uh, both the, uh, at the practice level, experientially, doing it myself directly. And then the more I learned, and I'm still just astounded at, at how, uh, how many ways the teachings are offered for so many types of different listeners and how many levels one can begin to understand, understand this. So I feel like when I hit onto Buddhism, it was just like, oh, you know, this is it. This is rich. This is full. This is a body of something that feels really familiar, that feels really resonates. Um, And I would refer to that as the Dhamma, the teachings, the truth. Here's something I'm reading from the Sutta Nipata. Those who are devoted to the Dhamma, made known by the noble ones, are unsurpassed in speech, thought, and action. They are established in peace, gentleness, and concentration. And they have reached the essence of learning and wisdom. When I think of the Dhamma and coming to practice, coming to the Triple Gem, I was thinking of this as I was preparing my talk. You know, it really feels akin to falling in love. It was like the closest way I could describe and I hopefully everybody in here knows what I'm talking about. You know, when the heart just, it's like this insatiable, I, uh, you know, how do you put that into words? It's above sublime. Above sublime. Above sublime. Above sublime, thank you. It is above sublime. And uh, I really mean that when I say it. I mean, there was, I remember at the beginning, there was this sense of um, excitement, interest. It was just like, whoa, what is this? How, wh- where have I been all my life? I asked myself that for a long time. Like, how did I not know this sooner? But, you know, when it's time, it's time. And that's just the way it is. Um, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was sort of reading things as I could. It, it, it was... Um, really quite an amazing experience of just sort of opening up to this body of teaching. 
I'd like to read a little poem from Hafiz, the great Sufi master. Practice this new bird call. The way we live opens windows and calls in a secret voice to anything still missing. There is nothing in your mind you have not invited in. There is no event in your life you in some way did not drive a hard bargain for. We were all once like moons, often full and bright. The heart, in its wisdom, ceaselessly shops for him. The wise in any foreign country seek a true guide. The guide says, just practice this new bird call. It will attract to you something even greater than love. At the time I came to this, I was uh, in this super high-stress job that was uh, <laughs> probably all that suffering really opened me up to the practice, but <laughs> uh, it really preoccupied a lot of my mental energy. You know, it wasn't until like years later when I look back, I'm like, wow. I mean, it really, it really did. Um, and when I came to the f- teachings initially, I had such a fear that I would forget what I was just learning. It was like I came to this and it was so powerful. And meanwhile, I was, you know, very much consumed. Uh, and I, I just, I, I don't know if it was irrational, whatever it was, I had this fear I was going to forget. You know, it's like finding the best thing you ever found in your life. And then it was like, oh my gosh, I can never forget this. Um, I had this quote. I heard it somewhere, I don't even know wh- wh- where I heard it. Uh, and it actually really supported my commitment to remember. It's very simple. It's, uh, the most important thing is to remember the most important thing. <laughs> I had it typed out, I had it taped on my computer. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not being funny, I really did. It was like every day, I, there was maybe a little window, you know, in the morning when I started a morning practice or, you know, could maintain it, or at night I would try to read a little something before falling asleep. Uh, so there was this real fire of, okay, I'm onto something big, and, you know, I'm in a phase of my life where there's not a lot of space for it, but I am not going to forget this. You know, this is pretty important. And I had little tips and tricks about uh, sort of things that helped helped me to remember, helped my aspiration to uh, go further on the path and practice more, learn more. Uh, I had little things like, uh, you know, when I was waiting, and we all wait at some point, somewhere, somehow. I could have been at a red light. Often, you know, driving to work, I just would remember, oh, I'm at this red light. Or waiting in line at the grocery store, waiting on hold on the phone. Uh, I just would use those moments to fall back into the body, you know, if I was standing, just to feel my feet on the ground, just come into the moment of the experience. If I was in my car to red light, okay, I'm in my, just to even know that I'm sitting in the car and I'm at a light, just like this moment of mindfulness. Also using those moments, so one way was just kind of come back into the body, get grounded, just remember myself in this moment. Or another one that I still do a lot is uh, do loving kindness when you have a moment of waiting. That's a great one for grocery store lines. 
may you be well, may you get home on time, may you have a good dinner, may your child start behaving shortly. You know, all of it, just really pour it out, just well-wishing, may the cashier not be too tired tonight. It's just a way of using the moment in such a beautiful way instead of thinking about all the million things that one needs to do. So uh, the other thing I used to do when I would fall asleep and immediately upon waking, I still do this, by the way. I don't always remember it upon waking. Um, I fall asleep with uh, one full metta, one full line of offering goodwill and kindness to all beings. It's often the last thing that you know goes through the mind as I doze off. I'm one of these people that... I fall asleep very quickly, like, you know, 60 seconds, I'm gone. So uh, I'll, I'll do my metaphrase. I like the idea of thinking that I'm falling asleep and this is the sort of the thought that's going, taking me into my path of sleep. And the one that I haven't been so good about lately that I did for many years uh, is the moment of knowing that you're awake, even before your eyes open sometimes. You know, the moment there's like... It's just to go, oh, okay, I'm alive. Here I am, I'm breathing, thank you. Just this moment of appreciation in the body. Here I am, I've got a day ahead of me. Um, another thing that I found really helpful in helping me to remember uh, is uh, chanting. I had never really done, I'd done a little bit of chanting before I came to this practice. And I was on a retreat once and we did this um Om Mani Padme Hung chant. It's just really beautiful, to my heart it is at least. It's a devotional chant. Um, it's often chanted by Tibetan, Tibetans, and it's used to invoke uh, compassion. Uh, I, I heard once that at any given point in time, you know, you can be chanting this and imagine, you know, all over in the universe there are like hundreds of thousands of people chanting it at the very moment you're chanting it. So I've always just thought, oh my God, that's so beautiful. I could just be, you know, I hum it to myself a lot. And just the idea that, you know, globally all over there's beings who are, you know, doing the same thing. It really makes, gives me a feeling of being connected, uh, just like a reminder. It's not just me on my little path, you know. We're all in this. Um, I fell in love with it the first time I heard it. And... That was another moment of like, oh, I don't want to forget this. And I, it was a New Year's retreat, and we were up late at night, and I swear I must have chanted it like all night long in my sleep because I just wanted to remember the little melody. I wanted to not forget the words. And I must have some fear of forgetting things because um, that was another really uh, key moment for me. And then I found myself doing it like in the shower. Pretty much any time I was having these sort of whatever, you're getting ready, doing things, you're not really f necessarily focused. And so what I started to do is fill the mind space, that kind of dead zone space, or spa you know, you're sort of getting breakfast going, whatever. I started consciously paying attention. Where, is my, where are my mind thoughts in this time? And the chant was easy. It had a little beautiful little rhythm. And so uh, it was more of a conscious effort initially, like really practice, like, okay, what am I, oh, am I doing the chant? And this was years ago, you know, now I'll just be like taking a walk, but I have to only go 10 steps, and it's like right there. It's automatic. The mind has been trained. And, you know, this is a beautiful way. Sometimes I don't even realize I'm doing it. Hopefully I'm, I come to awareness. It's like, oh, I'm chanting this beautiful chant again. 
So, you know, we can find little things that resonate with us uh, and train ourselves to use these as reminders to come back in, reconnect with the heart, remember what's important to us. This chant, by the way, is also printed uh, on prayer flags. You know, you see those Tibetan prayer flags everywhere, and that, that's what's chanted, that's what's printed on them. Um, and it's all over stones on the hillsides in Tibet. Another way to help remember uh, the practice or the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, or you know, coming back to myself, coming to the practice, is uh, the ritual of bowing. Um, when I, I'll talk about it again a little bit later. When I first came in, it's a, a bowing to the triple gem. I do this even at home by myself. It's a way of uh, feeling into the humility of bowing to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Uh, it's an act of reverence. Um, and it's, a more, it's, a phys- it's just a physical reminder. Some of the other ones I'm talking about are sort of in the mind. So for me, this is, or the chanting, I guess, is something you can sing out loud. So the bowing is uh, just another way to embody that way of having something to remember. Um, I think it's also, it, it strengthens a sense of reverence, um, for myself at least, gratitude, humility, and the ability to let go of kind of a, you know, self-centeredness. Because it is, it's a humble act to go down on the ground, to put your forehead down, or to, um, you know, surrender to the, the thing that's higher, higher power than ourselves. Uh, another way to continue to remember the Dharma is, and I've already mentioned that, reading, attending day-longs, um, going on retreats. Uh, you know, these days you can do online Dharma talks. You could just listen for like a year, or probably years. Just there's so much available. So it's really, really accessible. Um, Finding teachers that really inspire you. I have a lot of teachers that have had a big impact on me. Um, I really came to the Vipassana practice via Jack Kornfield's book that I mentioned, A Path with Heart. I found it very accessible. Um, I haven't read it in so long now. I probably should refresh myself, but it really inspired me. I also uh, did a long retreat and have done practice with Joseph Goldstein, who's on the East Coast. I find him to be... um, very accessible. He has a way of taking extremely complicated things and he just delivers it and it sounds quite simple. Um, Ajahn Chah and his teacher Ajahn Man, these are the uh, monks from Thailand. They're sort of the father of uh, the Vipassana practice that's taught at least in the West or certainly at Spirit Rock and IMC in Barrie, Massachusetts. Actually, I take that back. IMC is the Sayada Upandita. So these are some of the teachers um, that have since passed, you know, from a different generation. Uh, the Venerable Pawak Sayadaw is a Burmese master. I have studied uh, not directly with him, but from some of his disciples and done his teachings. And Ajahn Pasano, he's the abbot of Abayagiri. That's a monastery up uh, about three hours north of here in Ukiah. He's a Westerner, a Canadian, who spent many, many years in Thailand. Uh, is also a disciple of Ajahn Shah, and he's just amazing, a wonderful teacher. Uh, books, there's a lot of books out there in the universe. I read a lot for a few, re- a few years. That's all I read, literally. Dharma, 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 <laughs> nothing else. 
Uh, and it was good. That's how thirsty I was. I was like, I really need this. I brought one of my favorite little books with me um, just to show it to you. Uh, it's called The Noble Eightfold Path. It's a really, like, I don't know. I just think it's a gem. It's simple. It's easy to read. Uh, it's written by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a monk. Uh, I feel like it's the summary of the Buddhist teachings in a very accessible way. It's just a must-have. Sometimes I just pick it up and read it again just to make sure I'm remembering certain things. I mean, there's so many levels and ways we can go into the teachings. Different things appeal to different people, but I I think this is a real nugget. I would like to uh, offer a quote from a friend's journal. It was just uh, shared in an email to me recently, and the author's unknown. I'm not even sure if it was the friend's journal if she wrote this or found it somewhere and wrote it in her journal, all I know is it was from a friend's journal. The goal of the genuine seeker is always to take the next step, to open the next door. Waking up is not a scholastic pursuit or conceptual challenge. The ability to open the next door is the only thing that matters, and the key can come in any package, a book, a stub toe, an advertising jingle, a leaf of grass. If your intent is in place, then the universe will act as your librarian, and you'll always have what you need when you need it. Thank you. Yeah, I thought it was pretty darn good. How many people in, in here have done a silent retreat, or has anybody in here done a silent retreat before? Okay, just a couple of you. Well, you know, it's, it's rich. <laughs> it can be. Um, the first time I did a silent retreat, I was just like, okay, this is it. I felt like I had come home. I, I, it's hard to put words to it. Uh, somehow I, I had this like epiphany of, oh my gosh, my whole life I have been putting out putting out, putting out, putting out, like on every level. And it was the first time I really felt like I could just be. Because obviously you're not speaking on a silent retreat. It's days on end. And there was this huge relief. Like, wow, I can start paying attention. What's going on in here? What's going on in this body? What's going on in this mind? It was very, very powerful. Very powerful. Not the same thing as like sitting home and being silent in your home for a day. I, I uh, yeah, as Sogyal Rinpoche, a Tibetan Lama, says, meditation then is bringing the mind home. That's how it felt to me. I, honestly, I, I, I was so taken by it that I knew in that first retreat, I remember my first interview with the teacher, I was like so beside myself. I said, oh my God. I need to do more of this. I need to do a month. I, I was like on fire. And he was like, whoa, come back to right now. Because <laughs> I was already off, you know, planning. Well, how was I going to do another retreat? Uh, I was just uh, pretty hooked. Um, but the sense was I felt like I could rest in myself. This was something I had not been familiar with outside of the specific silent practice. Uh, I also saw with rather shocking clarity... Uh, my judgment, my anxiety, 
mental habits, things I didn't like. You know, it was like, oh, wow. (laughs) This is the full, you know, the full spectrum. So it's quite an opportunity to be able to uh, go inside like that and start to discover, you know, what's going on in here? What's cooking? Who is this person at a different level? Initially, I didn't even recognize some of this to be uh, suffering. You know, there's this, often we hear, we are suffering, we can relieve suffering, we come to the teachings on account of suffering. Uh, It took me... You know, it took me a while to connect with that. I I mean, we all have had suffering in our lives at some level. But I thought I was kind of happy in my life. And when I heard suffering, I was interpreting it as gross suffering. You know, the loss of a loved one, I don't know, breaking a leg, something, you know, major stuff. And so when I would hear this reference to suffering... Uh, somehow it was like, oh, that's happening out there. That That's not really happening here. I'm fine, you know. I live a little pretty happy life and la da la. Uh, it took me a little while to, you know, come into that and realize, you know, suffering can be, in, <laughs> can be and is in, in, in many moments and at very, very subtle levels. Um, when I quieted down was when I could see the intense level of stress and anxiety I was experiencing in my life. Wow. And I think at some level I was kind of oblivious to it. I mean, I knew it at some level, but there's nothing like quieting down and really going into allowing yourself some retreat time to feel that. So for me, you know, that was a lot of suffering. It was, um, I, I couldn't not see it. It was kind of a shock, actually. Uh, I started feeling, you know, whoa, I got so much tension in my belly. Oh, my gosh, I got anxiety here. You know, it was, it was kind of shocking. It was like, okay, at some level I'm high-functioning and I'm fine, but uh, the stress was not that suitable to my constitution at all. And who knows how long I had been sort of living that way. So it was this coming into the practice that really allowed me to start to take notice at a very different level of what was going on, you know, much more subtle. I was a little confused about it. I didn't really even like what I was seeing, you know, but I was very curious, very curious. Curiosity is a good thing. Really kept me, you know, digging and digging. Uh, I'd like to share one of my my favorite poems uh, by Mary Oliver. Uh, to me, this poem speaks to the heart's longing. Really, and, and, and I don't know, the true nature of life. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, the mountains and rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese 
high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. This poem was read uh, at one of the early retreats that I attended, and I don't know, it just blew me away. You know, I really relate it to the practice in some way. It really, um, really touched my heart. So that was the context sort of of the Dharma, the Dhamma. You know, first I talked about the Sangha, the Dharma. Now I want to talk, I save the best for last. You know, usually it's referred to as the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. I did it in the other direction. Lastly, um, I call it the gem, it's the first of the triple gems. It's the Buddha, the enlightened or the awakened one. Depending on one's interpretation, it can mean the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, or Buddha nature, the ideal, the highest spiritual potential that exists within all beings. This aspect of the triple gem coming to practice, uh, it took more time to evolve for me. Initially, I didn't actually connect with the actual person who became enlightened. I was probably broadly aware of the archetype of the enlightened being, but with my slow-growing understanding of the Dhamma, uh, combined with my direct experience of practicing, something began to awaken in relationship to the Lord Buddha. When I look back now, it seems that it was mostly facilitated by my commitment to sila. Sila is the Pali word for um, ethics, doing well. Um, I think taking the precepts seriously in my life and taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha completely changed my understanding and relationship to the Buddha. It's almost like it it started in the order I presented to you, the Sangha, the Dharma, and then the Buddha. It's like I wasn't ready, actually, to really be open to it until I did a few things, whatever these things are. I'm sharing with you, you know, the ones I did. And uh, I'd like to share with you the five precepts. I look, up, I look at them as um, commitments to wholesome conduct. And I think living in accord with these, with this aspiration toward wholesomeness, uh, has such a level of, can have such a purifying effect on our hearts, on our beings, uh, that there's just an opening of the heart. So for me, it, it took this before I could fully open to my sort of love of the Buddha. So the first precept is to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. The second one is to refrain from taking that which is not freely offered or given. The third precept is to refrain from sexual misconduct. The fourth precept is to refrain from harmful harmful and false speech. And the fifth one is to refrain from consuming intoxicating drink or drug which lead to carelessness or dull mind. And 
that's a whole huge topic, just the precepts. <laughs> I mean, there's like, that, that could be a whole week's retreat or a whole day long, so I'm not really going to, you know, get into the detail, but just to, to point out that uh, I feel like that's a foundation um, of aspiration that can have a profound impact on uh, the process of purifying the heart, the process of really, uh, yeah, purification. Um, it, for me, it's pa- it paves the way for a deeper understanding uh, and open-heartedness to see the Buddha as more than the archetype and sort of include him in my love affair with these teachings, with the Dhamma. Taking refuge in the, the triple gem, or it's also known as the three jewels, it's pretty central to Buddhist lay and monastic life. Um, it, it comes in ordination ceremonies. It was originated, obviously, by the Buddha, according to the scriptures. Um, and it's generally considered to make one officially a Buddhist. <laughs> I never knew that, by the way, until recently somebody told me that. I was like, really? It makes sense. Um, It's just something intuitively that I was drawn to, um, perhaps because I spent time with monastic communities and had the opportunity to do that. Um, In many Theravada communities, following the Pali chant, um, it's often recited by both monks and lay people, and it's it's really considered a key expression of devotion and commitment. So when you take the refuge or you go for refuge... um, these affirmations are repeated uh, three times, and the reason they're repeated three times is to ensure that the mind dwells on the meaning of each affirmation at least once, which is actually kind of sweet. So I just would like to read the three affirmations to you, both in Pali and in English. Buddham saranam gachami. To the Buddha I go for refuge. Dhammam saranam gachami. To the Dhamma I go for refuge. Sangang saranam gachami. To the Sangha I go for refuge. The three gems are so called since amongst all the gems, the Buddha gem and the Dharma gem are considered incomparable in value as they are not material. So cannot be created, destroyed, or changed in any way. When taking refuge, we put our whole trust in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. A deeper meaning or interpretation of these gems, uh, when somebody takes refuge in them, when I take refuge in them, I'm calling up my own Buddha nature, and I'm doing it formally. I'm doing it out loud. I'm giving voice to that. It takes it to a very different level than just doing it in the heart by oneself, which is also very precious. And it allows... For myself, it allows the potential Buddha, Buddha nature, in each one of us, in myself, to start dominating. Uh, In a way, it dominates our intentions, our choices, our actions. It's this sort of, I don't know, it's this quiet, you know, if you're in a moment when you might be doing something unskillful or you're about to like, uh, it's this like, oh, wait, what, you know, what do I, how do I aspire to act right now? It's like this little reminder, and somehow taking the refuge, it just brings it to a present level much more so. Um, because it's this type of training that begins to, we have to start doing it to begin to do it and know it. In closing, um, I'd like to read a 
very short essay that Gill wrote. Does everybody here know Gill? Yes, no, maybe, okay. I'm not sure what to assume. Um, He wrote it as a reading assignment for the chaplaincy training that I'm in. And this one is on the Ten Perfections. I thought it was a nice way to uh, wrap it up. Uh, It's on the Ten Perfections. One of the Ten Perfections is truth. So in in talking about the Buddha, um, I I thought this was quite nice. And um, it's the perfection of truth. Without a commitment to truth, there is no Buddhist path. Dharma is a synonym for truth, and Dharma practice is synonymous with living a life of truth. In Buddhist mythology, it is said that in his many lifetimes of training, the Buddha-to-be never lied. While there are stories in which he transgressed other ethical precepts, his dedication to truthfulness was unwavering. One of the primary characteristics of psychologically or spiritually mature people is that they never lie to themselves. Being honest with oneself is a prerequisite to personal growth and a genuine liberation of heart. This is so important that we can safely say, as an absolute truth in Buddhist practice, that deceiving oneself is never acceptable. Serious practitioners strive to be impeccably honest with themselves. Truth brings inner peace by overcoming the conflicts and turmoil we carry within our own minds. Truth can bring an inner security that frees us from neurotically defending, apologizing for, hating, or hiding ourselves from ourselves. Truth can also help overcome conflict between people as we have seen with the profound work done by South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Truth is not the same as facts. Facts alone carry no power, whereas truth does. Mahatma Gandhi expressed this in coining the term satyagraha, or the power of truth. Inspired by Gandhi, Martin Luther King translated truth as soul, and satyagraha became soul power in the American civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. A variety of forces come together to give truth its power. One is the force of inner purity and calm that can only be found in truth and honesty. Another is the confidence that comes with knowing what is true. Yet another is the strength of the good intentions that stand behind speaking the truth Still another is the way that truth makes reconciliation and forgiveness possible. And finally, there is the impact of the many beautiful qualities of the heart released when truth helps liberate us from fear, hatred, or greed. One place we see the power of truth is in AA and other 12-step meetings. AA may have saved more lives than any other spiritual tradition in modern times. It insists that alcoholics tell the truth. By admitting their powerlessness over the addiction and making a careful moral inventory, alcoholics learn how to use the truth to release themselves from their compulsions. Buddhism also uses truth as a way to find release from clinging and suffering that ensues. The Four Noble Truths are not meant to be truths in the sense of a creed, 
that a Buddhist must believe. They are pragmatic truths, much like how it is true that if you cut yourself deeply with a knife, you will hurt, and if you keep the wound clean, you promote its healing. The Four Noble Truths is the Buddha's way of saying that if you cling or grasp to anything, you will suffer. If you let go of that clinging, the suffering will end. The Four Noble Truths have no value in the abstract. They are verified through direct experience by discovering how to be directly honest about our suffering and its causes. The need for personal honesty is the reason that Buddhist practice depends on mindfulness. Mindfulness is sometimes defined as the practice of being honest about what's happening in the present moment. The awesome freedom and profound peace toward which the Buddhist path moves has nothing to do with how much we know, whom we know, how rich, smart, or beautiful we are, who admires or even loves us. Rather, this path has everything to do with telling ourselves the truth and in doing so, becoming a true person. Through mindfulness, we discover a truth that is deeper than beliefs. These truths will transform our character, our deepest sense of being. What we say and do comes to be in harmony with who we are. If we don't become someone who is true, we have no peace or freedom. When our life is firmly based on truth, peace is not something we have. It is who we are. May the merit of our practice benefit all beings. Thank you.